Please join me in prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight, for thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. To this day, it's one of my favorite memories. A meal where another couple and myself hosted an engagement party for yet another couple who were recently engaged. It was in my humble apartment in Ashland, Ohio. The banquet table was an old picnic table with warped boards and everything that was covered with a white linen. We put the polished silver out, the candelabra, and it was grand. After cooking all day with that other couple that was helping me host, we washed up, decked ourselves out in tuxedo and gown, and sat down awaiting for their arrival. If you've ever hosted such a party, you know that there's something to hosting a meal that is special. Whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas or a birthday party or a First Communion party, such auspicious occasions, such feasts, if you will, are always particularly touching if, hosp- if the hospitality is done right with the right heart. You see, hospitality is a gift from God, and it's something that breaks the usual grind of our busy society. Unfortunately, we too little take advantage of that break, We're robbed of the joy that comes with it. And to our own shame, we go for convenience rather than hospitality as a culture. We go out or we make it easy, quote-unquote. But it's not supposed to be that way. There are certain things that are supposed to be celebrated in life in the right way. As we look at the Gospel passage today, you'll be relieved, I'm sure as I was, that it's not another gospel about a vineyard. Nothing against vineyards, but the lectionary was driving that point home, and so today we move on. Thanks be to God. And we move on to another image, the image of a feast. The image of a feast. Now, feasts are a theme in the Bible. Try to think for a second about all the feasts that go on in the Bible. I'll give you just a second to think about it. Through the Old Testament, through the Psalm, into the New Testament. Are some coming to mind? Here's some noteworthy ones. There's a feast in Exodus, chapter 24. A momentous feast just after the delivery of the Ten Commandments where Moses, Aaron, and Joshua, and the priests, and 70 elders feast in the presence of God himself up on top of Mount Sinai. It's worth rereading. What's another famous one? The Passover, right? The Paschal Feast is where we get that from. The Paschal Feast, the Easter Feast. Isaiah's prophecy today that Ryan read for us from Isaiah 25, is all about what? A feast. And Revelation chapter 19 speaks of the marriage feast of the Supper of the Lamb, which is attended by the faithful. 
It's not coincidental that all of this festal, right, related to feast, language comes to us in the liturgy. What do we say right before receiving Holy Communion? Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Actually, we're singing it right now. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Right? Let us keep the feast. Feasts are really important, but they're also images in Scripture, like the vineyard, for the kingdom of God. And so like the vineyard, this feast also is that image of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, well known to the Jews and should be well known to us as Christians as well. But not everyone will be at the feast, we see. While the call is great indeed, participation is limited. And as we see today, it's self-limited. It's self-limited. Unlike last week's parable, those, this one is different because it addresses not just the Jewish people and leaders like last week's vineyard parable, but it addresses the Gentiles too. And it makes the point that both are going to be judged by the same benchmark. There's a word for you, my catechism children. We talked about benchmarks this morning in our catechesis. They're judged by the same benchmark, by the same standard. And the same applies to us as well. This by itself is actually a remarkable thing, if you know anything about the covenants. In the parable of the wedding feast, Jesus directs the listener in all times, including us today, to embrace the joy of being called to the feast. But there's a second part of it, too, and that's to embrace the compunction, the compunction that should come in our souls when we look at the feast and look at ourselves. Now, that's one of those fancy theological words, right? What does compunction mean? Does anyone know? It's a seminary word for a thousand points. What's that? To be held? Become, to be compelled, yes. Being compelled is a big part of it. It's an action. It's a movement of the heart and the mind, particularly, in this case, towards guilt. Now, we always think of guilt as bad. But there's a place for guilt in the Christian's life. There's a place for sorrow. There's a place for lament. And the place for that is where we don't meet the benchmark set for us by our Lord. We should be, have compunction over such things. It also has an element of it that means an examining eye. So to pierce through, to see those things and to feel them. There's three sections in this parable, friends. The first is the preparations of the king and the first call. The second is the widening of the call of those called to the feast. And the third is the judgment of the ill-suited attendee at the feast. The first section of the parable runs from verses 1 through 5. Look at that with me very quickly. It's in the Gospel passage in your leaflet, or you can open to Matthew chapter 22. 
We read this. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatted calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. We'll stop there for the moment. The king, of course, in this parable, is God the Father. And the king spares no expense on this wedding feast. The feast is that metaphor in Scripture for that union between Christ and his church. Right? And so this wedding feast is going on. The king has gone through great troubles to put it on. He's killed the fatted calves. Right? Remember, this is an era with no refrigeration. It's not like you just put the fatted calf in the freezer and wait a few days. Right? But he's gone through this great deal to, put it, to make things ready. The party is ready. Everything's set. But no one comes. What's the problem? None of those invited will come. And who are those invited? Who are those invited? Well, here, those invited in this context are the sons of Israel, the sons of the first covenant, those who Jesus, throughout this chapter, is calling to repent, if only they will listen and repent and soften their hearts. But here he prophesies that many will not. We know that some do, right? We know at Pentecost that indeed the first part of the church is a bunch of Jews, right? And so it's not like he's saying here that all Jews are going to reject the feast, the invitation to the feast, and yet many do, particularly the leaders in this context. The successors of Aaron, of Joshua, and the nobles, the 70 that are there at the feast back in Ezekiel, sorry, back in Exodus chapter 24, the descendants of those that were there initially with Moses on Mount Sinai, here ignore the call of the king. And worse yet, we see in verse 5, they don't just pay no attention, but they're completely indifferent. One goes to his farm, another goes to his business. And then there's the wicked ones that sees the servants, treat them shamefully, beat them and kill them. Do you see the parallel that's going on with last week's vineyard? parable. There's a parallel here going on talking about how the kingdom of God is being taken away from those who refuse to execute execute the master's will. Yet there's a difference in verse 5 and that difference is big. Let's read verse 5 together. But they paid no attention. One went off to his farm and another to his business. In verse 6, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. But verse 7, the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So last week we had the 
kingdom being taken away from the wicked tenants and given to others, this week we have the king exacting destruction on the disobedient. And of course we know from the rest of the Gospels that this destruction, which is foretold, does happen to Jerusalem. Systematically, the Jewish system is dismantled. The temple itself is destroyed. The priesthood is taken away in 70 AD by Vespasian and Titus. These are historical facts, right? But this is also a very curious parable. For it's not just religious indifference here, but there's a shame and an honor indifference to the king's call to the feast as well. Now think about it for a second. What if in the mail tomorrow, you went to your mailbox, you opened the mailbox, and there was this beautiful invitation engraved from the President of the United States or the governor? Would you just pitch that with the junk mail? I don't care who the president is, whether you like him or not, or who the governor is, whether you like him or not. You're probably not going to be like, eh, right? This is their, and this is not their president, it's not their elected civil servant, but it is their ruler. The person entrusted with authority to guard them. It's their king. It's the person who in Isaiah guarantees the safety and the security of their land, of their fortified city. Worse yet, the servants aren't just indifferent, but treat him despicably, killing his messengers. Well, once again, we see the prophets talked about here, just like last week. And if you can imagine, things aren't going to go so well for such ungrateful subjects. As we read in verse 7, the king was angry, and he sent his troops to destroy those murderers and burned their city. Now we come to the second part of the parable. For in the first part, we see that many are called... But even with prophets and priests, they don't respond. In the second part, we see the widening of the feast. The king then widens the call from the first invited. Look at verses 8 and 9. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. That's an evaluation of the king. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now the highways and the byways were not the best places in the world to hang out. It's like going to the truck stop. And not like the nice pilot truck stops, you know but like the seedy truck stops. That's the kind of caliber that Jesus is talking about. You see, the opening of the covenant here is going from God's first chosen people, the Hebrews, to the Gentiles. It's akin to Jesus going to the Canaanite woman. Do you remember this back earlier this year? I think... I think Father Scott Gorbolt preached on it, if I remember right. But you remember Jesus goes to the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15, and the woman comes up to her and says, Please heal my daughter. 
who's being afflicted by a demon. And Jesus gives her this response that's scandalous, right? Why should I take the bread and give it to dogs? Go look at the passage. It's worth looking at. Jesus is doing something very important there. And her response is humble and faithful. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat up the crumbs from under the table. That's where our prayer of humble access gets that phrase from, by the way. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs from under this thy table, trusting in our own righteousness. We saw then, and we see here, that that the virtue of humility carries along with it gratitude. You see, it's those who are truly needy who appreciate charity. It's those who are truly needy that appreciate charity. Charity is what God has to offer. Which is something we all have to bear in mind. The hall is filled with both the good and the bad. The invitation is thrown open to everyone, we see in verse 10. And it's full. And so the second part of the parable deals with the feast of the church. The feast of the church. It's the second era. Both Jew and Gentile, whether of that origin, either origin, whether of other nations, whether foreigners or not, whether good or bad, coming out of those situations, all are invited to the wedding hall. And indeed, we see that in the church. Not all in the church are good. Jesus is clear about that in other places. He uses the image of wheat and tares, or sheep and goats later on at Matthew's Gospel. And the church, if I need to tell you this, and I don't think I do, is a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. It always has been. It always will be. Until the final judgment when Jesus returns, which takes us to the third part of the parable. The judgment of the ill-suited man. The poorly dressed man. There's a final version of the feast here in this parable, which is part of the feast after the judgment has begun. You see, what's being done here is the idea, the image of the feast occurring in three different ways, but being pushed together in parabolic form. You have the feast talked about in the Old Covenant. You have the feast here, the feast of the church, And then we're looking forward ahead to the feast that's after the final judgment that Isaiah talks about, where there's no more death and no more weeping and all that. We know that we're not there yet, right? All we have to do is look around. But we're crossing here from that second era of the feast into the third era. And St. Augustine speaks of this feast today, this feast that we read about today, when he talks about it being both the feast of the current church, which is the Eucharistic feast, and the feast to come. He writes this, he says, The Holy Scriptures teach us that there are two feasts of the Lord, one to which the good and the evil come, that's what we read today, and the other to which the evil dare not come, which is the one that occurs in Luke's Gospel. It occurs in a completely different part of Jesus' life in Luke's Gospel. So what's the last part of this parable depicting? Look with me at verse 11 through 14. But the king came in 
to, the look, to look at the guests, and he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now the man who showed up to this feast showed up having not decked himself with the wedding garment. And you have to know something about, uh, about uh, Middle Eastern culture and other cultures to this day to understand this parable, which is that wedding garments are given to you. Father Joshua, a Jay, shared with me that this is still the culture in Africa. When you invite people to be part of a wedding or a funeral, they sew up these elaborate, I can't remember what they're called, but they're basically long shirts, and they wear those to the feast. And so that's an important part of this image, that the, the, the garment's being given out at the door. And the guy is saying, must have said, nope, I don't want one of those, and came in and sat down. And so the man has not decked himself with the right uniform, celebratory uniform, for the feast. And this is perhaps a difficult lesson for people to understand, particularly modern Christians, because modern Christians generally lack this idea of self-examination and compunction. Some people are called to the feast and don't respond. We see that. We understand that point. We see that in our own lives. There are those who will defy God till death. And of course, they won't be at the feast. But then there are those that respond and come to the church feast, refusing to be clothed. They even enter into the great hall and sit down at the table of the Eucharist. I would dare say some have even presided at the Eucharist and given sermons from the church's pulpits. Just look at church history. But when the king comes, they'll not be commended. They will be to their great shame. Later in Matthew chapter 24, verse 13, Jesus plainly states, Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. We must, dear friends, not look at the other guy when we're dealing with compunction. Knowing, however, that there is potential for the hardness and coldness of heart, we must turn and look to our own souls at our own, and our own hearts and search out such things that are displeasing to the Lord. The great pe preacher and bishop from the 4th century, St. Chrysostom, writes that the garment spoken of in today's gospel for the Christian is, quote, life and practice. Faith in Jesus is not a one-and-done thing. Yes, it's by God's grace that you've been saved, that no man may boast, and it's by his grace that you persevere. However, you must persevere. 
you must examine yourselves and apply that grace to your life and your practice. You see, it's not merely a matter of being baptized that makes one a Christian, but it's a daily adherence to living out the faith. It's a weekly coming to the feast that you might be equipped to go out and do those things which he's called you to do. Writing on how this connects to the Eucharist, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, who writes in the 300s, writes this, he says, On account of this also, Solomon, referring to this grace, says in Ecclesiastes, Come eat your bread in gladness. Come eat your bread in gladness. That spiritual bread, he continues. Come, he calls the blessed invitation. And drink your wine in gladness of heart, having taken off the old clothing and having put on those who are spiritually white. You should keep these white always. Do you see what St. Cyril is saying here? Yes, grace is the thing that you're clothed with. It's the reason that we wear white up at the altar. It's the reason that priests wear white up at the altar. It's the reason that those that are baptized are given white garments at their baptism. You've been given that grace. However, it's your choice in your daily life and practice whether to sully that or not. And God is always happy to clean it. That's what repentance and forgiveness is all about. But you must come to him and ask for that to not end up at the wedding feast unclothed in righteousness. Dear friends, you've been called to a feast and clothed in baptism and salvation before God. By God, God has given us that ability by the pouring out of his Holy Spirit into our hearts to live lives of repentance and joy. This is why we're going to be singing at the offertory today, Deck My Soul with Gladness. Pay attention to the words to that hymn. Because it's rejoicing in what Christ has made us that draws us to Him. It's why we'll be leaving with the hymn, Rejoice ye pure in heart. It's why St. Paul in the epistle passage today talks about that, right? Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And the promise that goes on that is that the is that the Lord Jesus will guard your hearts if you're dealing with that. You can rely on it, right? You can rely on it. What you've learned and received and heard and have seen, says St. Paul, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. Even in the church, dear brothers and sisters, many are called and few are are chosen. It's not a threat. It's a statement of fact. It's to drive us to compunction that we might come to Christ, confess our sins, and then rise in gladness. Isaiah's feast on the mountain that Ryan read for us is, in fact, that to which we long, that post-judgment feast. Obviously, it hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. We will be face-to-face with the king, We will be seated at the table. And how will we respond when he comes? In shame or gladness? The founder of the feast has made everything ready. The founder of the feast has given us the garment of praise and joy.
Just put it on and show up. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.